You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Dan Bruder about his experience using a tech stack I haven't heard of anyone else using, Rust on the back end and Elm on the front end. He's used this at Struction Site, a company that makes software for construction workers to use on job sites, and has plenty of interesting stories and insights to share about the experience. And now, the Rust plus Elm stack. All right, Dan, thanks for joining me. Hey, it's great to be here. You're working at a company that has a tech stack that is, as far as I know, unique. I don't know of anybody else who's doing this, which is Elm on the front end and Rust on the back end. So I'd love to just understand, like, how did that end up happening? Like, how did you arrive at that stack for this project? Yeah, totally. So Instruction Site started with a Rails monolith and a React front end for their code base. And when I joined, I actually joined to build a new offering, a new product that kind of lives on top of that core product at Struction Site. It actually all started because my boss put a post out for an Elm job on the Elm newsletter uh, because ah. of just casting a wide net. Um, I was personally interested in using Elm. I'd been learning on the side. Uh, so applied, got the job, and then we built out the first beta of that new product using Elm on the front end. And actually... It was, it was pretty scrappy. So the back end was Postgres, which is that um, kind of stand up yeah. an API over a Postgres database. Right. And so this application used the data that was in the core product, uh, but added additional you know, workflows and information on top of it to provide you know, new value to new customers. And so, yeah, so like I said, it was scrappy. We got that thing off the ground and had a great experience building nice. with Elm. So that's, that's kind of where it all started. I'm curious, like, so you responded to a, a job opening for Elm. So it sounded like that decision had already been made. It's like, we're going to do this new scrappy thing in Elm, which is interesting for me for two reasons. One is, so first of all, that makes a lot of sense to me as an Elm programmer. But I would imagine that a lot of people would think, oh, surely if you're doing a scrappy prototype, you wouldn't want to use a language like Elm that's like well known for you know reliability and long-term maintenance and stuff like that. Surely it couldn't be good at both. But I mean, for my money, I'm like, yeah, I think it's good at both. But <laughs> but the other thing that that's stands out to me about that is that somebody had already made that decision, like even before the team had been spun up. So I don't know if you do you know what the background of that decision was? I have a little bit of insight. So it wasn't like a firm decision. Yes, we're going to use Elm. So I know mm -hmm. that at the company, they had been, like I said, using React and Rails, and there had been some exploration into Vue. So I think the year before, there was a kind of a small standalone application built with Vue. And I think it was like, hey, Elm is interesting. Elm is on the table. Let's see where this goes. And when I joined, I was like, hey, so I can do this in Elm, right? And they're like, yeah, go for it. Let's do it. Nice. Okay, got it. So it wasn't that the job description was like, we, this must be Elm, but rather like they posted the job description on the Elm mailing list. And so you're like, oh, okay, that, that's how you found out about it. Yeah, exactly. So there was like an openness to it, but it wasn't like a decision already. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no one else used Elm on the team. And I, I think it was uh, there was an interest in it. But yeah, we kind of blazed the trail there with that product. Nice. Okay, so you started off with Elm on the front end and then Postgres with the T <laughs> on, the, on the back end, which I never actually used it, but I remember looking into it a number of years ago. And as I recall, it's basically a system for give me a Postgres database and I will stand up a, a web server whose job is to essentially just expose API endpoints that are just that directly map to like being able to read from and write to that database. Is that right? Yep, that's it. So it sounds like that was that was version one. And then somehow 
one thing led to another and you ended up with Rust on the back end. So uh, let's talk about that. <laughs> How did that happen? So Postgres, you know, it was great to get off the ground. But what I found was as we needed more and more complex interactions, you know, kind of quote unquote business logic, I'm doing air quotes, that got pushed into the front end and was slowing things down. And we're like, hey, okay, it's it's time to actually have some back end, uh, you know, horsepower here. And Rust had been something that I'd been writing for maybe a couple of years at that point, or maybe a year and a half at that point um, on my own, you know, personal interest there. Oh, shoot. Actually, side tangent. I had actually written some Rust at Struction Site already at this point. There was another scrappy project, which uh, was... Okay, yeah, total side tangent here. We 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 have this uh, these three sixty cameras which we use to create like a Google Street View experience um, for our customers for their job site. So like I walk around the job site and I collect imagery, and then I can go back in time and see like what did it look like at this point in time. Oh, uh, we can cool. Walk through. So like um, while someone is like physically constructing a building, they walk around and just like take video of like how the construction is going and they can be like, wait a minute, what was going on back two weeks ago when, <laughs> before this wall was here? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cool. Like so-and-so invoiced me for something, but I don't think it's there. Let's go check and see if it's there. Ah, okay. But the camera that we were using didn't have like a first class SDK for stitching their two fisheye lens files together. You could only mm. do it in the desktop app, like through a GUI, which was made with QT. Sorry, mm. this is a big tangent. So, but we wanted that automated. And so we actually built a little script and I used Rust and ran it on a Windows VM in AWS and like clicked around the screen to stitch oh, these wow. things together as an API. <laughs> so talk about like Flintstoning or like, you know, <laughs> uh, ramping up, you know, before they have something. But that bought us a year of advantage over our competitors to support this camera. Wow. Looping it back in. So there had been some rust in production already at Structure Site, but this thing was like, this is not going to live long. This is going to buy us some time until you know they get together their SDK and we can make you know an API out of this. So coming back around, um, this product I had been working on in Elm was getting some legs, it was building some momentum. Like I said, it was you know kind of in a beta, but we were hitting the edges of where we wanted to be with some of the logic and stuff. And uh, so I just basically built out what we needed in Rust to like meet our like deadlines. And it's a startup. So there wasn't like a, a long, uh, uh, there wasn't a lot of red tape to go through to, right. to just do that. So I basically just built it and then we shipped the thing in Rust. You know, that's, that's like a, a common story that I hear, especially with like early stage startups, like really small companies is like, people used to ask me all the time, like, how did you get Elm going at No Red Inc? You know, like, how did you convince your bosses to do that? And, and I mean, the short answer was basically like, well, I mean, the whole company was like six people and, you know, there were two people working on the front end. It was me and one other person. And this was his first programming job. So, you know, he was kind of like, sure, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody else on the team kind of, you know, trusted my my judgment on front end stuff. And so, you know, we, we talked about it, obviously, but it wasn't. Yeah, like you said, it wasn't a, a big long protracted discussion it's like when you're in that kind of an environment there's just there just isn't that much red tape hopefully if you're six people and there's a ton of red tape the bigger problem is probably that the company's not going to last very long <laughs> now that said that kind of brings on some some interesting questions like oh okay if you ship this into production and it succeeds and it grows like how do you support this technology and that right. was something that we we got to experience firsthand, you know, as we grew as a company and 
as the team grew and to some surprising results, I think. Okay. Basically, we had a very strong hiring pipeline of people who wanted to use Elm and Ruff. And so as we were hiring and as we were growing, we just kept get, getting like really qualified, passionate, um, like high emotional IQ folks. Not that those folks don't exist in other pools, of course, yeah. but we were able to attract like a higher concentration of them who folks who were specifically like, I'm interested in these technologies and I want to use them so much so that the team that was using those grew and grew and grew. And, you know, we were trying to hire for both tech stacks uh, and we just had a lot of success with the one to the point where we just started to use, started to transition both into the Almond Rust, you know, tech stack because the, the, the headcount was there <laughs> because we okay, had so such success <laughs> there. So, so let me let me make sure I understand this right. So you started using Elm and Rust for this side project, and you had a Ruby on Rails and React, both of which extremely mainstream technologies, on the other side. And what you found was that hiring for the less mainstream technologies was so much easier that you ended up expanding the use of the projects, it sounds like, in no small part because it was so much easier to hire for them. Is that right? Yep. So this doesn't surprise me, but it seems to surprise everybody who has never tried this. Like it's (laughs) whenever (laughs) I talk to people, like it's such a weird position to be in because like, it feels like there's two different worlds. There's like the world of people who've actually tried like non-mainstream technologies and like tried using them at a company and tried hiring for it. And then there's the world of people who haven't. And and among people who haven't, there's this extremely strong perception that the opposite is going to happen. It's like, if we use Elm and Rust, how are we going to hire anyone? And I, I would always tell people, like, you know, when we started using Elm at No Red Ink, it was just like night and day. Hiring got so much easier. And I don't know how we hired anyone before we used Elm. And I, I suspect that when I say something like that, a lot of people are like, you're just saying that because you want to hype Elm. It's like, no, it's this is this is <laughs> this is reality. <laughs> this, and like I've heard this from so many companies, and and it's not. I, I want to say like it is not universal. One thing that is important is that I think it, it seems to work a lot better if you hire remotely, which I guess is a lot more com- common now. I have heard some anti-success stories or failure stories or whatever, where someone was like, "Yeah, we hire everybody on site, and there's just not that many people in our particular town that like want to do Elm." It's like, okay, well, fair enough. Um, but uh, and and I've also heard of companies that haven't had success with it if they didn't really get the word out. I think that's a really important part. It's not like you can just like use the technology and then like you have a slash jobs page, you know, on your, on your website. And then like, where's all the candidates? Like you, you still actually need to like let people know that you're using these technologies. Cause like they're out there, they want to like use these technologies. They want to join, you know, a company that will let them do that, but they have to actually know that your company is one of the, the few that does it. I'm guessing you had some sort of strategy for that, for, for getting the word out. Yeah, we did. One of those was Hacker News. Uh, that was like pretty successful sure. on-ramp. Another one was just these communities are smaller and tight-knit. And so yep. we have some folks from the community who reach out to their networks or post on you know, in Slack. And yeah, Jobs Channel those. on Elm Slack, sure. Yep, exactly. Okay, cool. Sorry. So one thing I've always wondered about Rust, and I, I know because of our past conversations, like some of the answer here, but something that I've always wondered about Rust for a, a use case where performance is not absolutely critical. In other words, where like, um, so I use Rust like on this compiler uh, for Rock, where like the, the main reason we're using Rust is because we want 
at maximum level of, of control over performance. Like we will reach for the unsafe keyword without hesitation if if it means that we can make something run a little faster. As long as, of course, we're confident that we're not actually like gonna you know cause segmentation faults or, or bad stuff like that. But like for us, performance is the motivation. But it sounds like in your case. Performance is not the motivation. So, what was the motivation? Like, I mean, I mean, you you, you knew Rust, but I'm, I'm assuming you knew other languages. You you probably like could have also written reached for like Node.js or you know maybe even uh, Rails. So, what was sort of the you know if not performance, like what what's the selling point of Rust as a backend technology for your use case? Yeah, totally. So, one of the pieces, obviously, I knew Rust. Uh, another, like you said, but another piece was for this product. One of the one of the parts of the product succeeding was the data being correct and the product being very stable mm. um, because the aspect of the product was, it was basically answering the question for customers, what specific quantity of drywall got installed on this date? Um, mm-hmm. or, or like, how's my job site tracking from a quantity perspective? Uh, and so that was something that we were up against almost immediately was how do we trust that this information is correct? Uh, and there's multiple pieces to that, but one of those pieces is like, does the web app, you know, fall, fall over? And there's different ways to approach quality. Ah. But one of the things that was a big benefit of Rust in particular was, uh, you know, just the high level of of quality of the service. Like, could ship stuff to production, basically just works, and the product was super stable and it was very changeable over time. Um, so I think dipping more into like. Hey, I mean, we used clone all over the place. So we're, again, we're not concerned <laughs> with performance. It's more like the the language features, the the type system, kind of the experience of building something really solid. Um, that that was a motivation. That was one of the motivations, um, you know, for me. Yeah. So when I started out with Rust, I used the dot clone method. For those who aren't familiar with Rust, uh, this is basically a technique where you've got a piece of information and you want to pass it around to some function. Uh, but because of the borrow checker, it's like, nope, you can't do that. Like very, very often, I don't want to put a number on it, but like in my head, I'm like maybe 90 plus percent of the time. If you just dot clone it, in other words, just make a deep copy of that, of that thing that you're trying to pass around, uh, it's going to work. Like the the borrow checker will be happy with, with it again. And of course it's a performance cost to like cloning that whole thing, but it's a lot faster development wise than trying to figure out what the actual problem is what the borrow checker is complaining about. And sometimes even if you know what the problem is, the fix involves a pretty extensive refactor or it can. So clone is a very, I I use it a lot as a beginner. And then later on I would go through it. Like as I got better at rust, I would go back and and happily remove my clones, but it actually sounds like uh, you just leave them in. (laughs) It's like, yeah, Yeah. we, we don't, we don't care. Like it's fast enough, even with all that cloning. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, where Clippy tells us to remove clones, we'll do that. <laughs> yeah, but Clippy, we're really but... not concerned about yeah, yeah, uh, about performance in that regard. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite Clippy lints is is when it says like, "Hey, this clone is unnecessary. Like, you're you're cloning and it's not getting you any benefit, so you can just drop it." Like, I I think they introduced that like two years ago, maybe. Or that, like that's when I remember starting to see those. And yeah, I'm a big fan of uh <laughs> of that. Yes. Totally. Uh, likewise. I love it. It feels like, uh, I don't know, free candy or like a bonus. Yeah, exactly. Right. It just, it's, it's like, I didn't have to do any work. I, I just, it's like, Oh, Hey, this thing, you just uh, you don't, don't need it. Great. Delete gone. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So I think the other thing, like just to underscore kind of that product too, like it grew both in, you know, functionality, but team size, but that stack managed the growth very well. Like 
Mm-hmm. I feel like we wrote, rewrote that thing maybe multiple times. Like if you think, but, but it was always incrementally. It was always like this piece where, you know, we're reworking to support this new, you know, thing that we're doing. And the stack handled it really well. I think that that was kind yeah. of the other perspective for me. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting that, so Rust has this, uh, first of all, I, I definitely agree with like Rust in terms of, um, like being great for writing maintainable code and being able to like change it over time and keep up with it. Um, there are plenty of reasons that I, 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 I well, okay, actually, I, I'm kind of curious what your perspective is on this. So when I look at Rust and Elm side by side, in terms of thinking about like long term maintenance, and also about like productivity of shipping new things, I feel significantly more productive in Elm, like kind of on both counts. When I'm shipping something new, partly it's like I don't have to get any borrow checker errors. I don't have to clone stuff. It just the compiler just takes care of it for me. But another part of it is just the Elm compiler just runs a lot faster than the Rust compiler. Like I get my feedback a lot sooner. And the other piece is when it comes to maintaining things, I found that refactoring in Elm is, again, easier for two different reasons uh, or or like making changes um, over time. One reason is that... uh, I don't have borrow checker errors. So like if I, you know, move something around, I, I'm not going to get any new errors and say like, oh, hey, hang on, this thing doesn't work anymore. You need to like update stuff or maybe insert some clones or whatever. It's more often just like if the types line up before and they line up after, you're good. Um, and the second thing is that because it's purely functional, there's kind of a, a category of refactoring regressions that I've encountered in Rust that I don't encounter in Elm. Uh, which is where I basically like rearrange some things. Uh, I've like moved some things around and in Elm kind of the, the order in which I call those tends not to matter unless there's specifically like effects involved. Like if there's IO or something, then okay, sure. But barring that, uh, and, and of course in Elm, those are like tracked very carefully. So it's, uh, you know, I, I know when I am or I'm not, uh, you know, doing effects. Um, whereas in Rust, I very often found the case that I'm like, okay, currently this is organized this way. I want to reorganize it this way in order to make a change that I'm about to make. But after I reorganize it, it doesn't work anymore. And I've been like frustrated uh, by that. And, and oftentimes just like ended up reverting it and just being like, okay, I, I can't figure out what's different, but like something's getting mutated in the wrong order or something. Um, and so that's been my experience. Uh, but I'm kind of curious what yours has been, you know, with, uh, with, with your use case. Yeah, totally. I think for us, the, just the nature of building a web service, this, we don't keep a lot of state around. Mm. And so it ends up being like pretty functional, like just one call after another on the back end. And so like maybe we've, it, we, so backing up my experience with that is it hasn't been a big problem huh. for us. Like we, it, it's a pretty similar, not the compile times, the compile times are much longer than sure. that, but the <laughs> like refactoring piece of it feels more in line with what it feels like in Elm to, to move stuff around. And I think it's because of that. On the server, it's basically like one big function piped into another one until you spit out, you know, a response to the user. So, so <laughs> that's really interesting. So, do you find yourself using the mutt keyword very often, like for Hardly. really? Oh wow! It's 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 almost a smell unless it's like for some shared kind of concern. Like we we uh, you know we forked a data loader library for GraphQL uh-huh. to like do some additional data loading stuff, and that had yeah like kind of hidden away in there. There was some stuff it was well tested, but for the most part is really used kind of more functionally. Wow. Okay. So immutable. That's really interesting. I, so yeah. I've, I've never uh, tried really using Rust that way because the, I mean, you'd have to clone a lot of stuff <laughs> in order to use it that way, but that's cool. That, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, interestingly, I, I guess 
using Rust that way, you're you're to some extent getting back to Rust's like ancestral roots in the sense that Rust kind of came out of this like ML family, you know, uh, like as in like standard ML, not as in like machine learning. Um, like the the guy who made it great in horror had this uh, had this quote that he was like Rust is kind of like linear ML in C plus plus clothing, <laughs> like like <laughs> syntactically it kind of looks like C plus plus, but like under the hood it's really like an ML family language with linear types, and like that's kind of the the core of like what what the idea was. And the first compiler for Rust was written in OCaml, as I understand it. So yeah, so so I guess using it in that sort of like ML style, you know way um where you're avoiding mutation as much as possible yeah it's it's, it's kind of get, getting back to how it was originally came about it's kind of cool so something else like uh, on this topic that i'm curious about is i mean it sounded like in your case rust was just sort of like in the right place at the right time like you knew it you knew that it would give you this like maintainability and reliability ability to to make changes over time without causing regressions all of that sounds you know like very familiar goals to me and and i know that of the technologies I've used in the past, like I've used like Rails and I've used Node.js, I've used Java, Scala, like all, all of these, like, you know, uh, for backend services, like th- there's definitely uh, Haskell, uh, you know, more recently, I've definitely had a spectrum of experiences there. Um, I know some people say like language doesn't matter. And it's really about, you know, like how you apply the technologies. That has not been my experience. My experience is that like, definitely, if you want to have a reliable thing that like, doesn't have regressions when you make changes, Language can make a big difference. So one of the things that led me to sort of wanting to create Rock was at No Red Inc. a few years ago, and this is like five years ago, actually, now. Actually, it was even more, wow. <laughs> Time flies. This is like 2016, <laughs> it was the year, which, wow, is somehow seven years ago now. But of course, we are now on March 730th, 2020, I believe, is <laughs> what somebody said. But yeah, we had this question of like, okay, we want to move away from Rails on the back end. What do we move towards? And there was no obvious answer. Like on the front end, there was obvious like Elm. We're really happy with Elm. And there was no obvious Elm equivalents on the back end. Everything had these significant trade-offs. So what we ended up going with was, was Haskell, but we called it like sort of Elm-flavored Haskell, where we're like, we're going to use Haskell in as Elm-like a way as we can. But even that has has plenty of trade-offs. But like in my mind, one of the a couple of the downsides for Rust First of all, it hadn't occurred to me to try and do it in this like clone everywhere way. And I think it's it's cool that you've done the experiment and found out that it works well because one of the things I would have been worried about is like, well, what if all the cloning actually becomes too slow? Like it's it be, like Rust has this sort of low overhead. So you, you you start out at an advantage compared to like a Node.js or a Python or something. But what happens if you're cloning everywhere? Does that more than erase the advantage and now make it too slow? I wouldn't have guessed. Like one way or the other, I, I didn't know, but I'm, I'm. It's cool that you've done the experiment. It seems like in practice, it's fine. So that's nice to know. <laughs> um, but the other two things that I were, was worried about with Rust specifically, when we were sort of comparing all these different alternative languages, um, one was compile times, because you know Rust does have a reputation for slow compile times, and because well, because it does have slow, <laughs> slow compile times. <laughs> uh, um, and the other w- th- that I was worried about was onboarding new hires who didn't already know Rust. Uh, so basically learning curve. And that was that was also a concern with Haskell too, to be fair. But I'm kind of curious what your experience has been with that. I, like, ha- have you hired people who don't know Rust yet? And, and like, if so, what's the onboarding experience been like? Yeah, great question. Most of the hires we had uh, had already been using Rust in their spare time. So there was some synergy nice. there. There were a couple of folks who were um, like coming out of an internship and joined you know, full time mm-hmm. and hadn't had otherwise, 
you know, any other Rust experience. And they ramped up, although they weren't primarily focused on building on the back end. Mm -hmm. They were doing more front end work. So I don't know if I have a good like data point there of like, hey, we hired a back end person, you know, they're ramping up on Rust from ground zero. Uh -huh. And what does that look like? Everyone who has had experience in the past, even if it wasn't professional, it was a pretty you know smooth onboarding, was able to get productive. So yeah, I don't have a great data point there. Although I will say that uh, the folks who did jump into Rust were able to still like ship the features that they wanted to ship. So I would still be like, that, that's still kind of an open question of like, what would that look like yeah. for, you know, for, for new folks coming in? I definitely think you have a leg up because of the cloning approach. Because one of the things that I found hardest to teach beginners is basically like lifetime annotations and like that. So I did this intro to Rust course on uh, front end masters. So it was like an eight hour course. And I was trying to figure out like, what should the scope of, of that course B and like what what should I you know end up trying to teach and I did a bunch of practice runs with different people and very quickly I realized that inside of eight hours starting from they don't know any rust it is hard to just inside eight hours get to a point where they actually have some idea what life and lifetime annotations are for like that was my goal was like by, by the end after a couple of practice runs I was like at first I was like, okay, we're gonna get to traits and we're gonna get to this. And I was like, nope, cut all that. Like all we have to do, like <laughs> we, at eight hours, I have eight hours to get you to understand what lifetime annotations do. <laughs> and like That's a big challenge. Yeah, it, it is, right? <laughs> like, it, because there's so much background that you have to give to like, and, and so what I ended up going with is kind of like, first of all, like motivating, like, okay, so like, what are the problems that Rust is solving? And I was like, here's how heap allocations work. Here are some of the problems with manual heap allocations. So then let's say, okay, so if we're going to automatically deallocate, you know, under these circumstances, here's the like naive way to do that. Okay, but what if you're like passing a thing in? Well, now we don't want to deallocate it or else we're going to have a use after free or a double free. And just kind of like walking through like each section, it was like, teach you a little bit more about the language. And then as I go, also like each section would introduce more and more about memory. It was like, Part one was just like basic syntax and like hello world type stuff. And then I think memory got introduced either in like part two or part three, like right away, I started talking about memory and like bits and bytes and stuff like that, just so that by the time we finally got to lifetime annotations at the end, it's like, okay, you already know what lifetimes are and, and yada, yada and all that stuff. And, but if you're just using clone all the time, you can probably just hand wave away a lot of that stuff and just be like, okay, you let's, let me just teach you. If, if you get an error that complains about this, try, try dot clone here, you know, see what, see if that fixes it. And, you know, there's, there's an element of like 80, 20 rule there where it's like, yeah, I mean, that's not going to get you deep understanding of the language, but the goal is onboarding, right? The goal is like, like you can get that over time. You don't have to get that on day one. And if that's not going to cause performance problems in practice for your production system, then like, where's the downside? I mean, people are getting onboarded, they're getting familiar with the language, they're able to just, you know, make ship stuff that works. And then yeah, over time, they can start to understand they, they don't have to get the lifetime annotations in eight hours, they could get it over eight months, you know, <laughs> it's fine. Um, <laughs> as, as long as they're still able to, you know, contribute to the code base. So um, totally, I mean, that's all Man, theoretical. Think, but yeah, it's, it's interesting idea. Yeah, I think the thing for that I was keeping in mind is like the compiler errors are so helpful. Yeah. I mean, obviously in Elm, that's the gold standard, but also in Rust, sometimes you can go into the weeds on a Rust compiler error, especially if it's lifetimes yeah. related. But if you're kind of staying in that, you know, the wagon wheel track of cloning things, the error messages are generally helpful. And so a combination of like the compiler is my friend. 
I'm pairing with people and I see patterns in the code base that I can copy from are enough momentum for me where I feel pretty hopeful that folks would, would do well there. Yeah, that's cool. Another thing I'm kind of curious about, like you mentioned that this style that you of Rust that you use where like, you know, you do everything immutably and 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 don't use, you know, the mutt keyword unless, you know, except in like unusual circumstances is kind of like functional. So when I've tried to do maybe more intermediate advanced functional programming in Rust, like especially if I'm doing a lot of stuff with higher order functions, like passing around a lot of functions, I haven't had a great experience. But I'm curious if if that's something that you've done, or is it just that like, you know, you do it more on the functional side of like avoiding mutation and side effects or, or isolating side effects and less on the side of like higher order functions and function composition and stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. We, we haven't gone too deep in, into that, that realm. It, it really, really take plucking those functional features of yeah immutability. I know there's dragons there. Like if you're trying to do a bunch of like typical functional stuff, right. uh, you get, you, you get the compiler kind of blowing up at you with, you know, a, string of types that makes no sense um <laughs> yeah, I've one, seen those, yeah. one yeah uh, or like the other place where uh, uh compile error errors will blow up is like we used diesel as kind of an orm for mm. for the database and diesel does some of that stuff for you where it you know comprises these giant types that are uh, you know end up having this type safe api to the database but the error can be very confusing um, actually, I think that that's kind of a tangent. That's not really what we're talking about here. I'm curious uh, about that too. But, uh, we can yeah. go back on that tangent in a second. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, kind of staying in that lane again. We haven't we haven't needed to do like a ton of stuff, uh, you know, kind of in that realm where where that was a problem. Okay, nice, nice. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I, I think that's that's kind of like what I ended up concluding about Rust is I'm like, yeah, there's even if I'm using even if I'm avoiding mutation in Rust, which sometimes I do it as long as I can do it without cloning. I still want to try to play to the language's strengths. And what I found is that like higher order functions, if you have like a very simple one, like like map or something like that, it's totally fine. But generally speaking, I, I tend to avoid them. Whereas in functional languages, I just use them all the time because they're nice when you you know have, I don't know, when the, when the language has good support for them, um, which I would say in Rust, it's, it's there, but it's not great. And there's pain behind using, like if you're doing something with async and have closures, Oh yeah, uh, and you're trying to do something functional with async. There can be you know some some potholes there too. I've heard that. Yeah, we're actually not currently using async. We briefly used async, and then we uh, had some problems with it, and we just like, all right, let's let's just get rid of this and just do concurrency ourselves. But now we're kind of like, okay, actually, there are some strong motivations to go back to using async and like try to figure out the issues we were having before. Um, so maybe we'll end up doing that. But um, yeah, I, I have heard that, but haven't really experienced it personally yet. So one thing I'm curious about with with Diesel. So I'm assuming Diesel uses a bunch of like procedural macros somehow to uh, I don't know like gen- generate stuff. That seems like kind of the <laughs> what I would do if I were doing an ORM in Rust. Um, I'm also guessing that it connects to the to the database and like reads the schema out of it. So does it do that inside the proc macros or like how how does that work? Ooh, that's a good question. At what point does it connect to the database? Like for example, if I don't have my database running, can I still build my program or is it like you run a command to like sync them up or right yes it's it's that okay. so it's like it's actually at compile time i think it connects to the local database or there's like a mechanism to dump a schema like use an offline schema or okay. something yeah interesting yeah um that's all that's always an interesting trade-off because there is this element of i've got a database it's got a schema there's types to that schema 
I've got a program, there's types in the program, I'm going to get data from the database into the program, and I want the two to sync up. But what I don't want is I don't want gigantic, scary compile errors at any point, if I could avoid them. <laughs> and then there's also some like kind of weird sort of timing questions, for lack of a better term, such as, like, yeah, I mean, if my database, if my local database is not running, do I still want it to be possible to build my program? And also, what happens if I switch branches? Like, uh, if I've got my local database and I switch branches, and on that branch, uh, maybe there's some migrations, but I haven't run them yet. Like, what do I want that? Do I want to get a bunch of compile errors that are like confusing? Because I'm like, well, what, what are you talking about? This is, you know, this should be fine. Or do I want those things to, do I want to have to like manually press a button to regenerate those things so I can press that button after I've done the migrations? Or so I'm kind of curious, like, what, I don't know, because um, I don't think we've used this uh, PostgreSQL typed library in Haskell, um, which does some of the same kinds of things, like syncing up the the, um, the types of the database. But I'm kind of curious what, uh, what your experience has been with diesel and because uh, I've not used that library like are there any like I don't know sharp edges around that or has it just been kind of like great overall or yeah from the like type safe from the database to the code that has like overall just been a win yeah like there's definitely that speed bump that, and we've experienced that it's 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 almost like every new person who gets onboarded runs into a wall of errors and it ends up being like a migration or a regeneration. Sure. But like once they do that a few times, then it's kind of like a non-problem yeah. after that. Like, oh yeah, okay, I need to like <laughs> rerun that migration or whatever. So it's ended up not being a problem in practice from that perspective. Uh, and the benefits of the type safety all the way through have been a big, uh, big win for nice. us. Um, with diesel in particular, there was it was difficult to like get a feel for the API because of some of the difficult to understand um, type uh, uh, errors that come out. Mm. If you don't combine the methods appropriately or if something's out of sync, Interesting. we actually moved to SQL X, which I think is more akin to that library that you're talking about in Haskell, where you just write SQL yeah. and it type checks against the database with it. It, it also uses macros. Yeah. Um, that's how PostgreSQL that, type works also. Yeah. So it's, it's like you, you have, you write raw SQL, but there's a little like string interpolation kind of looking syntax that that so you can bring in variables from outside, and uh, but it doesn't it, it's not la- actually string interpolation because then you'd have SQL injection attacks. It's like they get translated into you know um, uh, query params and stuff like that uh, automatically. But yeah, it's not a query builder. It's not an ORM. You're not like composing things together. It's just like SQL. Let's go. So that's interesting. So you you went from an ORM to that. What I don't know. How's that gone? Do you think that's a step in the right direction or in the wrong direction? Like it's gone great because the way that we were using Diesel wasn't leveraging like typically how you would want, uh, like where you would reach for an ORM. Where it, when I think about an ORM, I'm like, hey, the database is here at my fingertips in my programming yeah. language, and it, it feels very seamless. Diesel is like maybe a step away from that where you're still like, okay, I'm definitely building up a query and I'm definitely, you know, definitely executing it against the database. There's some friction there, but just the way we were structured our code base, we weren't using it like, you know, like active record and rails where it's kind of mixed in, you know, in, in with your code. And so we weren't kind of getting those ORME benefits. uh, And we were kind of wringing our hands like, Hey, this should produce this kind of SQL. And so we just SQL X was kind of, rising in popularity and support and, and kind of came to the mainstream. We're like, Hey, let's check this out. Let's try it. And it turned out really nice. Yeah. So that's become my preference over time is, um, I don't know, like the, the, the idea of ORMs really, 
in general, in my experience, never seems to work out to be as nice as writing the raw queries by hand, especially once you get into queries being the bottleneck and needing to optimize them. Then the ORM goes from something that's like a convenience to like a really serious like hindrance to be worked around. And I've also like everywhere I've worked, eventually I've always needed to optimize some percentage of queries. And it's, it's not small. <laughs> and so I where I've kind of ended up is like, I want something that will you know, help me deal with like query parameters automatically and like hopefully help me with uh, type safety on both ends. But that's kind of it. At, at the end of the day, I just like, yeah, just just happy to write raw SQL queries. Uh, and like, that's that's kind of the language that it, it is best at that <laughs> in my experience. Yeah. And the other place I've seen that is like, hey, we've got an ORM, but we want to do like a, what is a common table expression or sure. some additional like, SQL functionality that's just clearer if you have it all together right. written in SQL. Whereas like maybe um, with an RM, you've got a snippet of SQL tied to like the typical methods that are generated for you in your code. And just kind of having it, we have some, yeah, we have some statements that are very long, but they're well commented and they're all together. And so it's like, okay, I can kind of get a sense of what's happening here. Sure. Yeah. Or, or I mean, there's also like stored procedures and stuff like that. Um, but I'm a big fan of that approach. So I think if I were to start using a, a Rust like SQL library, I would probably just go straight for SQL X <laughs> based on my experiences. But it's cool to know that that's out there. Okay, now another thing that happened, um, I guess this was like a year ago or something, was Structure Site got acquired, right? Yeah, technically calendar year ago, although it was only in November. Okay, <laughs> so, so very, very recently, yeah. So it's, it's, it's yeah, recently. Right, it's, here we are at the end of January, and so yeah, maybe like three ish months. <laughs> And so, as I understand it, I mean, uh, you know, lots of acquisitions uh, have implications on technology. Sometimes, you know, the acquiring company will say, you need to adopt our tech stack. Uh, other times they'll say, keep doing whatever you're doing. And it sounds like uh, they're, they're cool with you continuing to do this Elm and Rails thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a combination. So there's going to be, <laughs> and that's what the last few months have been about. Um, like, which pieces? So we've got two products that serve similar flows, you know, from a user perspective, uh, how do we bring these together? Mm. How do we take two apps uh, with, you know, features on one app that are really, you know, powerful to some users or well-received and vice versa, but maybe there's not overlap in other places. How do we bring them together? Mm. Yeah, definitely technology implications there. So yeah, it's going to be a mix for some of the things we're going to adopt their, uh, their system and their platform, their languages um, and build features in, the place that they already have them in their platform. Sure. And then for some parts of the product, we're lifting Elm and Rust and we're stitching it, you know, like as a sidecar alongside their existing platform and reskinning it so that it all feels like, you know, one platform. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a hybrid, but it, <laughs> that's been a challenge. Like, Hey, we've got these two systems with momentum behind them. How do we bring them together in a way that our customers are, uh, you know, it serves them and they're excited about? So right, I mean, that's always going to be hard, right? You have, you have two disparate systems where it's like it makes sense for this functionality to live together, but the code was designed completely in isolation. It grew up into these, yeah, <laughs> like two completely unrelated code bases that now need to talk to each other and collaborate somehow. Uh, yep. Yeah. Never, never trivial, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> That's cool, though. I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, obviously, you know, at the very beginning of this transition, but it'll, it'll be kind of interesting to see, like, um, how the hiring piece continues to affect that. Like, I wonder if uh, if it, it becomes the case that uh, Elm and Rust starts to creep into the acquiring company's product because there's so much, you know, interest in, in hiring and stuff like that. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> it's already happened once. We get, we get to try it all over again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's cool. So something else I'm kind of curious about is, so you've now spent some time with like uh, Elm and Rust, and I, I, I'm guessing at least like uh, you know Rails on the back end. Like, if you were starting a you know brand new like from scratch code base uh, like tomorrow, um, and you you decided I'm going to use Elm and Rust again, like what would you do differently? Uh, is there anything where you're like, oh, you know, I mean, maybe it's like, okay, SQL X, we start with that. But I mean, I know sometimes, you know, you make decisions early on and you get, you know, so far down the road that it's like, okay, yeah, if we could start over again, we would do this differently, but it's, it's just not worth it anymore. Um, but, you know, mental note for future, uh, if I were starting from scratch, I would do this differently. Anything like that come to mind? The first thing that came to mind is instead of using uh, generics, I would box more, like use oh, Dyn, uh, like Dynamic Dispatch. Be, I've I've been curious for a long time, so we've got you know a large code base at this point that heavily uses generics and yeah. you know in different places as an abstraction. I'm curious what the impact on the compile times would be uh, if we just box more, because right. again, the performance is not as critical for us. Yeah. So I I honestly I, I have used Dyn almost never. Because okay, so I'm gonna explain my understanding of it and tell me if I'm if I'm off on this. But so normally, if you have a generic Rust function, like let's say I have something that takes a hash map and the hash map has to have these particular keys, but I don't care what the values are because I'm just gonna be doing stuff with the keys. And I write this function and it's generic over you know give it any hash map you want uh, as long as the keys have this particular type. Every single time Rust calls that function with a different hash map type, like the value type is is different. It's going to basically copy paste the entire body of the function. This is monomorphization. Copy paste the entire body of the function and make an entirely new implementation of that just for that type. So if you call it with five different hash map types, it's going to copy paste that function five times and then uh, and then you know proceed to compile all five of them, uh, each one being specialized for that particular hash map type. So the trade-off there is that the cool part about that is that it means that you don't have any runtime overhead for that polymorphism. Uh, you get to have this generic function, and each implementation is as fast and as low overhead as if you had written by hand a specialized version of that just for that one particular type. And it'll get optimized that way too, which is can be even better. But again, you, you're not really concerned about runtime performance. So on the other hand, uh, with Dyn, you have the Dyn keyword. It's another way to do generics where instead of doing all of that, you basically uh, have one function. It does not get copy-pasted five times, but rather instead, Rust adds a little bit of extra metadata to the call. So basically, I guess you could think of it as like an extra argument that says like, hey, which of these different types am I actually doing? And then inside the body of the function, it sort of adds a, a little like, you know, switch statement or something that just checks like, oh, which of these types did I actually get? And therefore, I'm going to do something different at runtime. So there's extra runtime conditional and also extra runtime memory to pass in the information of like which type it was. But it means that your compile times are faster because it doesn't have to compile the function five times. It's like one slightly more complicated function that only compiles once. Um, okay, that's my understanding as someone who doesn't really use time much at all. Uh, does that sound right to you? Yeah, that's right. Okay. On. Um, and for us, that like th that abstraction was kind of a core piece of the way that we structured the code. Mm -hmm. So we use kind of the ports and adapter approach to things, where you have you, you pass them like, "Hey, I want to run this business logic, and uh, I want to be able to save some information somewhere. I don't know where that is. Give me something that can you know something that adheres to this interface, and then I will use it to save my information. Right. Could be a database, could be you know whatever." 
And so that pattern is all over the place and, and thus like that abstraction is all over the place. And I would love to see, Hey, what would that look like for, from a compile, you know, compile time standpoint? Yeah. Makes sense. Um, yeah, interestingly, so this is something in, in rock that we do. Uh, we do it the way that Rust does generics, where like, if you call that polymorphic function five times with five different dictionary types, then like, you're going to get five implementations. The rock compiler is going to compile all five of them. Our bet is that because we have been <laughs> very hardcore about trying to make the rock compiler as fast as possible, that even with that in practice, it's going to be fine, especially because, um, well, for various reasons, uh, we don't know, like it, it's entirely possible that, you know, once you get like an absolutely enormous program, it's going to be a problem. We don't, we have reasons to believe it won't be, but, um, but we, we won't really won't know until those like gigantic code bases exist. But interestingly, I mean, one of the things we can fall back on, which I hope we don't have to, cause it'd be a lot of work, but is we could do something like, for example, in development builds automatically doing the equivalent of dying, like what Rust does, because we've kind of designed it so that, uh, uh, it's basically that implement that's an implementation detail and it's kind of hidden from the user. And so we can say like, okay, in an optimized build, we can do the, the thing that's faster, but in a development build, we can, uh, we can do the dynamic thing. But well, again, hopefully we don't have to because <laughs> it'd be a lot of work, but in theory we have, uh, we have that as, as a lever we can pull if it turns out to be a problem in the long term. Cool. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Cause I mean, there's so many different factors to like, I mean, we, it's easy to say like, Elm's compiler is fast and, and Rust's compiler is slow, but like there's so many different factors as to why that is. Um, one of the things that's like really different is like Elm compiles to JavaScript. So really it's just like once you've done parsing, name resolution, type checking, which both Elm and Rust do, um, then like once you get to the sort of the code generation standpoint, it's like Elm's job from there is like just spit out a string. It's like just a JavaScript string. Like, and, and that's at a pretty high level of abstraction. You don't need to do things like all, all this stuff that we're talking about, this like monomorphization stuff doesn't really happen in JavaScript. You're just like, oh, I'll just, I have an Elm function that's polymorphic. I'll spit out a polymorphic JavaScript function, done. So that part can be a lot faster than what like Rust and Rock have to do going to machine code. And Rust's use of like LLVM and not having an alternative to LLVM uh, is, is a big factor there, which is why we've invested a lot in like having non LLVM <laughs> backends for, uh, for development builds in rock. Um, that step alone is just so huge. Like just waiting for LLVM. LLVM is very slow to generate code. Even if you tell it to do zero optimizations, it's still very slow. Yeah. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see like which things in practice, you know, uh, end up like becoming significant or, or not. And, and whether we're able to, uh, you know, get, get this goal of like code that, compiles to something that runs really fast and yet it also compiles really fast like elm does because um, another thing that's interesting is that elm's compiler is a lot faster than rust's compiler but rust's compiler is written in rust and elm's compiler is written in haskell so just knowing only those facts you would think that rust's compiler would be a lot faster but it's not and i also don't think <laughs> i guess i've ranted about this before but i don't think that it's just i don't think it's a i don't think it has to be slower uh i think it's it's just like because of implementation choices that uh, could have been made differently. And I guess also some design choices that could have been made differently, but neither here nor there. <laughs> that is a sweet spot that I'm looking forward to with rock. What would I do again? Well, I'd write the back end and rock. <laughs> <laughs> give, it a, give it a little bit longer to cook. Yeah. The once, once it's ready, once it's ready. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that, that, that was like a big part of my motivation was like this, this experience of looking around and being like, what's the equivalent of Elm on the back end? It's like, there's nothing, no, nothing. Everything has significant downsides in one area or another and yeah i mean 
fingers crossed. Uh, so so far, so good uh, as far as like <laughs> making that thing work. But cool, man. Uh, anything else we should talk about? I don't think so. This has been super fun. Yeah, th- thanks so much for sharing. This is a really cool perspective, and and it's it's kind of cool to hear like a mix of things that are familiar to me, and also some things that I, I hadn't ever known about about like you know how, ways you can use Rust uh, if you don't actually need to have such strict performance requirements. That's my that will cool. be my message to everyone. If you're if you're getting into Rust, don't worry about clones. There you go. Nice, Dan. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks thanks for having me.